Hello, welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. And we also have Dean with us here today. Hello, Dean. Hello, Guthrie. Hello, Susan. For those of you who maybe this is your first episode, um, uh, Dean Barker is a uh, uh, sort of in the UX intelligentsia. Would you would you say that that's that's a fair classification? I don't know what that means. I, I, don't, even know, sure. I don't even know what that means. Well, you say, have a lot just of books. say yes. Yes. And, and a professor. You have a lot of books. <laughs> and a professor of UX, a deep thinker. Yeah, he's of, a of UX topics, UX. Yeah. and uh, we're going to continue actually our sort of uh, deep thinking about some of the more abstract components of uh, of UX. We've been talking about objects and views, so this is uh, this is the third uh, episode on objects and views. Is this correct? It's the third episode in our series on. I don't know. Yeah, H- objects and views, or historical roots of UX, or. You know, we probably should have named it before we started recording it. <laughs> well, it's no, okay. it started right. with the history of, right? Like we were going to yeah. talk about the roots of UX and some of the right. HCI and other theories, the kind of the the lost art stuff. You and, know, to uh, to be to start with this. To be fair, Dean tried to get us to to decide what we were going to cover on each of the episodes in our little series. And, and Catherine and I both basically said, ah, forget it. Let's just get on and talk. So uh, we, he did we try. Have a, yes. We're, we're a little more, we're, we're a, little a little more, more jazz loose. here. Yeah. Oh, though that's funny since he's the, the jazz professional of the three of us. All right. Anyway, this episode, what are we going to do, Dean? Well, we had, uh, sort of wrapped up the history lesson up until about, mm, where did we get last time? About 1980-ish. The history lesson of specifically? Of all the all the technology that informs what we're talking about with yeah. regards to object-oriented yeah, design yeah. From, a so- from a software perspective. From a software right? perspective. Okay, and some hardware stuff too. We yeah, so that, that plays into it. So we were going to kind of wrap up the history and then I think we were going to talk about uh, object-oriented programming, yeah, and then segue from that into how that informed object-oriented design, and then right. get into the nitty-gritty of object-oriented design. Go which for very it. Well, maybe number four in our you, series. You, yeah, see. we're not going to make it all the way through, but let's find out how right. far we get. All right, take it away. So let's see. So I'm going to find my notes here. We had talked last time about kind of the prehistory that led to the the lore that most people in the industry know around the relationship between Steve Jobs and uh, and Bill Gates. And uh, they were the, for those of you who missed the last episode, you'll have to go back and listen to it, but they were sort of the potato farmer and the corn farmer of their era. All right, let's just move on from that because that's a strange <laughs> statement. So yeah, go back and listen to the previous episode if you want to know what that means. All right. So, so there's a there's a famous there's a famous story we we had talked about the uh, the Xerox Park uh, relationship yeah. to the the lore of uh, graphical user interface GUI design, and uh, you know prior to the GUI era, it was really in the beginning was the command line, right? And last time we talked about green screens and orange screens and, and, and text-based operating systems. 
And there was uh, an operating system, an early operating system that was uh, DOS, the disk operating system. There were a few permutations of that. And then Bill Gates licensed his version of that to IBM and others. And that, that really took off and was, was the foundation of, of Microsoft. And then they evolved into development of Windows and the whole GUI technology that we know now, which came out of the early work at Xerox PARC. And similarly, with the Macintosh operating system, with the early Mac computers, very briefly, there was a command line interface. And then by the time it rolled around to the uh, Apple Lisa and then the Apple IIGS, which really was sort of the pre-Mac Mac, it was the first color GUI. And then they regressed a little bit with the original Mac, which was black and white, but still had all the same constructs from an inter interaction standpoint. And then by the time they got to the Macintosh uh, 2, then it was in color. And, and so then we're in that sort of modern GUI era that everything would be recognizable as we know now. And so it was this relationship between those two companies, Apple and Microsoft, and the operating systems themselves that were the foundation for the whole thing that we think of as uh, object orientation in computing from a, from a software perspective. There's this great story. Uh, I don't think we told it the last time, but it was, it was captured somewhat in the, what was it, the Pirates of Silicon Valley, that movie, and it's in various books and whatnot. And it was this argument between Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates, and it was a face-to-face -face meeting that they had where Jobs was berating Bill Gates for stealing his ideas and you know stealing all the things in the Macintosh for Windows, and he was very upset and very animated. And Gates sort of was famously stoic, and he stood there and you know took his took his drubbings, and then said, "Well, Steve, the way I see it." It's more like you and I had this rich neighbor named Xerox and I broke in or what did he say? And then you, I broke into, no, now I messed up the story. You broke in to uh, steal, their, uh, steal their TV and I found out it was already stolen. It's like my George Bush moment, fool me again. But that was, that was basically the, the story. I think I might've twisted it a little bit, but you know, they were both stealing from Park. Right. right. Like it wasn't like Windows stole from Mac, Mac stole from right. Windows. Right. They they all took these ideas. And it wasn't so much stealing, it was this evolution and confluence right. of, of all of these different technologies and ideas. And so that was really the the era that defined what we know in modern computing from an operating system and desktop laptop computer perspective. And this gets into the whole sort of foreshadowing of what we're going to talk about with object-oriented design, but that really kicked off an application-centered era, right? Because the operating system by itself does nothing more than provides yeah. the foundation for the applications that give us productivity and entertainment and all of those things. And so it was the software that was built for those operating systems yeah that defined, you know, 20 years worth of computing, then what happened? Then we entered the era of the internet and the World Wide Web, and that's when things started to change. And so that, that'll that lead into kind of the, the idea of 
how object orientation got lost, but I'll pause there and see if for next time I can find a better version of that story that I completely botched. I have to go back and watch that movie. No, that, yeah, I, there's something I may, I, you were last, last episode, there were some thoughts rolling in my head and this episode they've come back and I may want to, I may want to challenge a few things around the, the relationship or dependency of a graphical user interface with object oriented design. So well, I'm going to put a pin in that and reserve the right to come back and have a philosophical argument with you, Dean, that, you know, you and I never have any philosophical <laughs> arguments ever. Well, it, it is your podcast, so you can reserve whatever rights you want. <laughs> That's the beautiful thing about it. <laughs> All right. Keep going. Yeah. So, so we have then in the, in the 80s, uh, we have this evolution from the Windows and Mac operating systems and the IBM PCs that were what the Windows operating systems ran on, right? So you have to understand that, that Apple was a hardware vendor. Microsoft was not a hardware vendor, right? They yeah, were they was software. software. So it was this relationship between uh, Microsoft and IBM that's a core port, part of the story yeah. because Microsoft yeah. needed IBM computers, right? right? And for a while, they were completely intertwined. This goes back to the OS2 thing, right? Yep. IBM had their own operating system, which was truly object-based, not object-ish, as we've touched on before, yeah. like like Mac and, and Windows are. And so they had a joint venture for a while, and then eventually uh, IBM pulled out. Windows sort of won that one, and, and OS2 fell into the dustbin of history. But... Uh, the concepts behind it and the, you know, the extent as such is made public, the literature around object-oriented user interface design, which is what it was called, really came out of that crew at IBM. Our friend Theo Mandel was part of that. An old friend of mine, uh, Harris Kravatz, was a, another generation of that. There were a whole bunch of people who were important in that effort. And so Theo's book, The GUI uh, OOUI Wars, talks about that relationship between Windows and OS 2. And then there are other books. There's the CUA guidelines. Uh, see if I can dig out some of these things. I should have had them more handy. Um, this thing, since we're on camera, the Common User Access Guidelines for Object-Oriented Interface Design. That is a great uh, book cover. Is it? You like Just that? a classic. It is a classic. It smells like an old book. book. I, I, I had one of those. 19, I don't anymore. 1992. So that, that was publicly available, obviously out of print now. Uh, Theo's book is also out of print. And then to me, if uh, I think we had a conversation about that. You were talking to somebody who was trying to dig for some of this. If we were to get one book on this, this is the Designing for the User with Ovid, uh, Object View Inter Interaction Design. And we'll, we'll come back to that. But you know, but IBM and the people in IBM published books. This was publicly available. They were doing, excuse me, conference presentations and, and things like that. So, you know, IBM was very much in the mix, even though we talk about um, Apple and Microsoft sort of predominantly, the IBM part of it's really, really gotten lost. But 
If you think about that, that era of computing and what evolved out of that, then by the late 80s, early 90s, now we're starting to see, starting with Tim Berners-Lee at CERN, we're starting to see web browsers, we're starting to see the internet uh, take off, and that changes the face of computing. So throughout the Windows and Microsoft era, we have all these applications, and that's really the, you know, they talk about the killer app, right? Like that's the reason that we that we use computers and in, in, in what we use. I, I, I promised sort of the last time I would posit a hypothesis about how Steve Jobs both popularized what we would think of as object orientation and was responsible for killing it. And the popularization was that that the Mac, while it always had a smaller market share than Windows computers, really influenced computing culture and ideas. And to, to a certain extent, that story that I botched is true and that, you know, Windows would borrow from, from Apple and Apple was more at the forefront, even though they both stole from Xerox. Um, but when we moved from an application-oriented culture on our computers to a browser-oriented culture, my hypothesis is that from an interaction perspective, we regressed in terms of object orientation, right? Because you think about the, the, the Mac and the, the Windows applications that you use, they're interactive, they're three-dimensional, you're moving all over, you've got literally windows back and forth, you've got dimensionality to that, you have a whole lot of direct manipulation what happened in that era of the web? There was an evolution from the web page and basic HTML and hypertext to greater inter interactivity. And this gets into the relationship between uh, all the companies we've talked about and another company, which is Adobe, that had Flash. I think it started out at, in Macromedia and then they got, they got purchased. It's been a while since I've uh, looked at that stuff, but you know, I lived through it, right? And, and so... Uh, Flash was this technology, for those who, who don't know, that brought GUI-like interactivity inside of a web browser. It yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting, again, having having gone through that and, and lived through these transitions. Um, it is true. I remember when, you know, having worked for a while and doing, doing uh, design... I was going to say UX design, but of course it wasn't called that. It wasn't even called UI design back right. then. But do, having done design on, um, you know, working with large corporations who have custom software that's running, uh, you know, on Microsoft machines, right? Microsoft operating system. And that got fairly sophisticated, right? And then the as you said, the internet came along and all the things we were used to being able to easily do in software for these large corporations, their internal software, it was like, oh, well, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't right, do that. Right. You know, from an interaction design point of view, our capabilities like dropped. That's right. That's right. And, and it was weird because, of course, everyone was used to being able to do a lot in a in a in software and then there were these 
you know, internet web-based apps for a while that couldn't do just basic interaction design things that, that we, at, by that point we were all used to. And it took a while before it, it took a long time before the, the, you know, software technology for the internet stuff caught up. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it, it kind of caught up, right? Like, so I was going to say, say it, we, assuming it did catch up. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it, it's, I think sometimes people assume it's just been this, you know, progression upward of capability from an interaction design point of view. And, and it, it really was not that way. We, you know, we developed yeah. all this new stuff uh, that was all, I mean, and, I, and I'm going to say, actually, in my experience, most of my experience as a consultant back then um, was with, uh, you know, large corporations who were, for the most part, running Windows stuff. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft stuff. Um, you know, not, not Apple. Uh, Apple was not big in the corporate realm back in the day. Yeah. So most of the consulting I was doing was Microsoft Windows based. I think I think the design community though has always been very Apple centric and you know very influenced by it, and so it had sort of the hipster reputation and it did. a lot of yeah. early adopters and designers and creatives. I mean, they played to the creative market early on, right? Like I yeah. was. Was very in, early in doing digital music with all the Mark of the Unicorn right, stuff, right, right, and you right. know that was part of the creative community. And so, um, yeah, I was. I think that I wasn't one of the creatives. <laughs> well, I you was, you came out of academia, right? I so. was a techie nerd. No, you know, I that I really don't think that. I think in terms of computing, I came out of the. I mean, I was thinking as you were talking, Dean. I mean, there was a time period where. Um, so, uh, in my, in my, in my time frame of my education and my work experience, I hit the, this moment where there were, um, a gazillion, gazillion people, uh, looking for jobs, um, who all had at least a bachelor's and many had masters and many had PhDs. And so, you know, having a, a PhD in psychology, and, and knowing about tech did you no good at all. And so I was, there was a couple of years there where I was like just trying to figure out, I had left academe, I had decided I didn't want to be a college professor, and I had left a job that was academic but not teaching, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and this, I, I, I started you know, fooling around with having my own consulting company. But I had this time period in between where I sold um, computers, huh. uh, which was a really interesting time to be selling personal computers. That's what they were called right, all of a sudden. Right. Because before that, you didn't sell computers to anybody because they were giant machines. Um, and so, you know, I, I just have this these weird, as you're talking, you are stimulating these strange old <laughs> memories about all of this stuff for me. But I was definitely on the techie, you know, Microsoft, and then the corporate 
design consulting end of things and yeah. not the not the creative mac apple uh visual designer world of things i was right. and it was a separate world right right it was absolutely a separate world back then. It, it's been interesting, the evolution of the community. Maybe that's a, a topic yeah. for another podcast yeah. to kind of track the the community. And we've had the conversation before about what we call ourselves and, you know, the, the vocabulary and all of that. But with the, the history of all this stuff, so there was this era that was the operating system era or the application era where our computing was on a desktop compute, computer, eventually laptop computers, and it was applications. You use applications yeah. X, Y, and Z for business and productivity yeah. and for entertainment and, you know, creative hobbies and, and all of those, all of those sorts of things. And then when we get into the browser era, yeah. and then things, things started different. to shift. And so we have this, all this rich activity, uh, interactivity rather. So, you know, you think about like in, in the early days, I started out the very first project I did was actually character-based uh, and then it was for a few years, it was all Windows-based software, business computing, as you said. And then, you know, eventually it, it transitioned to web applications. At first, there were no web applications. There were just websites, no. right? Yeah. And then you got web applications, form-based, you know, kind of a, a database architecture, database-centric paradigm, right? Forms, yeah. you submit forms, you return data, that sort of thing. And then eventually that evolved into... RIA's uh, rich internet applications or something. I forget the, the specifics of the acronym, but you know, it was stuff like, like flash, right. And flash yeah. really took off, had some performance issues, right. It was trying to do a lot. It was, you know, from a computational standpoint, took up a lot of memory, all these things, but it had that promise of object orientation and people were, it was a, a development platform, right? As well as a delivery platform, people would program for it and program things in it. And it gave you all this interactivity within the browser, right? And, and people don't think about even just the basic concept of windowing. Like when we were designing Windows-based applications, one of the things you always had to get clear from a design standpoint in your architecture was what they... Uh, called the SDI versus MDI, right? Single document interface versus multiple document interface. You're windowing. How is that, how is that going to work? And, and people don't really think about that because once you get into the browser now, you don't have that same windowing, right? Yes, you have pop-ups, but you don't have that dimensionality. Like if you think about your desktop right now, you know, I've got seven applications open, who knows how many tabs on my browsers, all alt tab between all, all of those things all the time within your web browser on a single in a single page in a single tab you, you don't have that and so it's it's really regressed and, and flash gave us direct manipulation where you could grab a thing manipulate it slide it all of that it wasn't this form-based sort of application that we think of and and so while Steve Jobs had really done so much to push this object-oriented paradigm, which he wouldn't have thought about it that way. He would have thought about it as a GUI, right? But, you know, it was the object orientation behind it that that we're, we're concerned with now. Um, the other thing that he did was 2010-ish, I think, completely shut down Adobe and Flash. And, uh, and I know Guthrie knows that, knows that event a little bit and his has looked about that uh, looked at that because I think 
it's interesting to think about that event in that era and what might have been uh guthrie do you have uh do you have a rendition of the story so a couple of fun things uh first um the letter is now dead so uh it, it was functionally a blog post at um apple.com that steve jobs just posted and those links are now gone so all the news articles and stuff from when it was uh, when the letter was published back in 2010 uh, are are you know four of fours. So I hmm. uh, in order to actually find it, I had to use the the Wayback Machine. Oh wow! Uh, web.archive.org and uh, you know went back to 2012 to uh, to, to to figure it out. Um, it is uh, it's an interesting letter, you know. It, it uh, it's a little complicated because um, Apple has a long history of, well, I mean, post Jobs of not doing proprietary or of doing proprietary things. Um, jobs sort of kind of went back and forth between eh, proprietary yeah, and not proprietary. Um, so so uh, briefly, the letter says first it talks about how much they love Adobe. And Apple actually invested in Adobe and owned 20% of the company for many years. So they sort of like the uh, Steve Jobs, Pixar relationship. He, he seemed to have little pets that he was very in, endeared to. And I think Adobe was one. Um, he complains that uh, the that Flash is 100% proprietary. And Adobe has full sole authority as to their future enhancement. This was an era... Um, it thinks that started, but it really taken off since this this time period, when a lot of the big tech players got together to work on open standards. So a lot of the big modern open standards, especially with software that you see today, um, like the uh, like like AV1 encoding. At, I mean, that's a huge one. There, you know, that all all the big players are signed up for that, and there are. Um, smart home automation standards like uh, matter um, and hardware standards that, that, that are much more common today. And back then it was sort of like just pulling teeth just to get anyone to, to come together to have an open standard. Um, so he talks about uh, the full web. Uh, it says that Apple mobile devices can't access the full web because 75% of video on the web is Flash. What they don't say is almost all this video is also available in a more modern format, H.264. And uh, for those of you who don't know, H.264 won. <laughs> so for the longest time, I mean, that is, that's the JPEG of video. Everything is H.264. Um and so uh, he, he, he talks about reliability, security, performance, um, battery life, that, uh, that it's just Flash is just limited. And then there's touch. So Flash websites need to be rewritten to support touch-based devices. Um, and he says, if developers need to rewrite their Flash websites, why not use modern technologies like HTML5, CSS, and JavaScript? And uh, that's 
that's that's exactly what what happened. And the that's rest is history. Yeah, that's right. So Steve Jobs killed Flash in that open letter in 2010. Maybe he did, but Apple was not the Apple they are today in 2010. They were they were not nearly as dominant from especially from a phone perspective. So it's not like they could just um, immediately, you know, today if if Apple decides not to do something, it's a pretty big deal. But I think what he did do is he, he critically wounded it <laughs> by 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 both by both just a uh, by both supporting uh the like I said, those open standards pushing for um, the basically JavaScript to take over anything yeah. Flash could do. Yeah, and and, and, and so then do but video it, with H.264. But it didn't really like for some reason the developer community didn't really move towards that interaction depth that we had with Flash applications. I'm not exactly sure. I should say that, that I be. coded Flash applications back in the day. I made little. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time in Flash doing. Uh, doing the little like bouncy balls, and yeah. I, they're probably still floating around on my server somewhere. And interact it, like you know, like press stuff and make stuff happen. So I I do have some history actually with Flash, and it was uh, it was an interesting piece of software because today it's so easy to do video. You can embed a video anywhere. Yeah. It's just so simple, and it's easy to embed audio. But back in the Flash days. And my recollection of it is it was actually almost easier to create something that was local and dynamic that you would interact with than it was to embed assets. Embedding assets was actually a real pain in the butt. So having like a video play when you clicked on something was very difficult. But just having a circle that you could bounce around was actually very easy. So Flash in some ways, you know, in a lot of ways, it was meant to be a uh, a local content. It was designed to be kind of local content first, whereas all the previous stuff that kind of comes later, a lot of it's designed to be feeding remote content, you know, yeah. in. And that's, think, you know, think about it from a consumer different. perspective, though, right? Like, you don't care where data lives, where information lives as a consumer, right? Like, that's a technical issue what you care about is the experience and the flash experience was very rich this other assembly of open source technologies had promised to replicate it for some reason i i see that as a as a milestone that that 2010 where there was a fork in the road and we went away from flash and these rich browser intensive very interactive object-based uh computing experiences to more in the page two-dimensional in the web. That's also the period of time, I think it was 2007 that the iPhone came out, there were, where there was another shift in technology where we started to go to baby faces. We started to go to, to, go to small screens and people were carrying around phones in their pocket. And you know what? So you that know what was, really that was the other branch, the other branch in the. Yes. What really killed this whole thing, ironically enough, was the Apple App Store uh, for, especially for mobile, because before there was a huge, you know, w Windows, you know, m computers had always run video games and it was very low level, um, you know, working in various iterations of C to just run video games at a very kind of low level on 
um, mostly Windows, but I mean, DOS and, you know, they've been doing that forever. And so there was this kind of period where it was like, wait a second, why can't we have these video experiences that don't run so close to the hardware? Let's take it up a level of abstraction and we'll run it in the browser. And we're going to kind of have the browser be the computer and it can operate anywhere. And as long as you have a browser, you can play this stuff. And, and so there were all these advancements that happened and flash being one of them to try to have these very cool interactions um, that ran in just a different way. And, and then, um, yes, in theory, with JavaScript and HTML5, you could have all these really interesting things. But what happened was, is that the App Store blew up. And everyone pushed the App Store, especially Apple, because then you can get 30% of the money that was sold on all the games. So they pushed all the carrots where to have your application not be online, but to be in an app store. And the app store was written, um, I mean, for, you know, it was, you know, what is it, ob- object C or whatever it was for, uh, 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 I mean, it's Swift now, but whatever it was before Swift and uh, Objective-C and, and then, you know, basically Android's running Linux. And so all of the momentum towards making these interactive experiences happen in a browser. It all gets killed and it all goes back to basically writing in a version of C that's this very low level, uh, uh, very traditional in some ways, uh, way of, of making video games and experiences so they can run in the app store. And there's, there's, a, there's a pro to that, which is that you, do, you probably do get better battery life because you're running closer to metal. But there's a con to that, which is all of the momentum in creating really cool, mostly lightweight experiences that would operate on the internet. It all got, it all just died. And so the promise of HTML5 and JavaScript to recreate the very cool and very advanced games that a Flash game could be, you know, Flash games, you know, 10 years ago were basically what a modern... Net, what is what a modern simple application you know yeah. like mobile app is and so you know you just take 10 years of development where might we have been um, to to have these experiences you know using javascript and html i just never got there and i don't know necessarily yeah. if it will I, um, I think that's right you know so we had this this era where computing was for professionals not general consumers and then you had the operating system era with Windows and, and Macintosh that was the app era where on the computer for general computing use, people had their experiences, you know, many people had computers, but it was application centric. And then it was still on the computers for a period of time. And we went away from AOL, Genie, Delphi, you know, whatever, Prodigy, all those early online services to life in a browser right? So the internet and the browser, different things, obviously related, but we went then into this life in a browser. Flash pushed the object orientation and the interactivity to the nth degree to replicate what was already on the desktops, but Flash lost. So we went back into the browser, but just as that happened, we were then moving our computing life onto our phones. And now we're back to an application oriented existence 
but on the phone instead of the computer, right? As, as sort of the dominant computing model. I would say arguably then the next major shift is 2019-ish with the Oculus and then now you have Apple and their Vision Pro and the evolution of spatial computing. As that goes forward, that is because of the interaction model itself, you know, away from WIMP, Windows icon mouse pointer, still ish with some of the some of the technology but as we move into the era of spatial computing it is inherently object oriented right so for people who don't have an oculus or a vision pro and some of these these early technologies which are still extremely early in that game um, you know think about iron man and the avengers and tony stark and the projection and grabbing and manipulating and moving things around uh in, in terms of uh holographic pr projections and so that is really promising and very exciting when you combine that with some of the other technology trends, a little bit outside of our topic, but the stuff and the promise of the, of the, uh, the metaverse, even though that's sort of taken a, a bit of a hit with, uh, with you know, the, the memes around Facebook, but you have that, you have the blockchain technology, uh, you have the proliferation of AI now, all these things are coming together and we'll soon be in a whole completely different era of computing. So it's, it's interesting. What is it? May, may you live in interesting times. I think we live in interesting times. So you've made it up to the future. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we're now we're now in the future. Maybe we should come back. Let's come back to reality, shall we? Where <laughs> do you know. want to go? <laughs> we're, we're just done. I mean, you know, it's like okay, bye. Back to the future. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So all of this impacts our uh, impacts our design community because this is the this is the context that we work within, right? We can have all these great ideas about object oriented design and you know scenario based design and task oriented design and all of these different things, all these things that influence how we how we design and how we think about design. But um, we don't work in a vacuum. We work in the context of this computing macro environment and it shifts every so often right and some things become okay, but more or less possible yeah 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 so it's all right so let's have let's have let's talk about that both kind of philosophically and 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 realistically there's um you know, there, there's the level at which stuff gets created, right? Which is what you guys have been talking about. Uh, you know, is it flash? Is it this? Is it that? You know, and there, there's all that, all those changes, of, you know, not necessarily forward progression, you know, offshoots, who's got power, who kills what. And that's a whole world, right? And I'm going to argue, just for the, well, I was going to say just for the sake of, you know, arguing, but actually not. I'm going to argue a point of view which says um, that's the whole physical programming reality underneath the hood. Mm -hmm. But if we talk about the the design part of it, the design reality. You know, it is it is true that the technology that is available, you know, when you're designing software, an app, anything, as a 
as a designer, as a UX designer, you have to understand the technology it's, that it's going to be running on. It changes your design decisions to a certain extent. <laughs> but then there's the part of it where like, yeah, okay, I know. I know that's the technology. However, you know, here's what's best for the, for if you want people to be able to do this thing, here's what's best for them. And then you negotiate, right? It's like, right. well, we want to be able to do this. Well, we can't do that. Well, why can't you do that? And, you know, you have these conversations back and forth. And um, so I think there's a, at a design level, all this stuff can be going on but you can still have the same conversation that you have regardless of the technology. You can still have the same conversation that you might've had in the 1980s now, which is, okay, what is it the human wants? Or, you know, what, what is yeah, this particular sure. user group? What are they trying to do? What is the, what are the steps that they want to follow? What is it they want this experience to be like? What's going to work best for them? And, you know, let's map that out. And then, then we can look at the technology we're using and figure out, can we do yeah. it? What can't we do? What's the best way to do it? But that ultimately, regardless of the technology, you're talking about, you know, these things like tasks, steps, scenarios, stories, um, that are, you know, and we all use the term agnostic, right? It doesn't, right, right. it doesn't matter what the hardware or the software is at, uh, at some, in, in a way, at some level. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, if you think about um, some of these things that are enduring, that's part, that's part of the reason that we had this conversation that led to this podcast series, right? Is there's just some stuff that people forget about and we're like, well, wait a minute, it's still relevant, right? One of my intellectual heroes is a fellow named Christopher Alexander, and he's an architect and an author and a professor, and, and he's uh, quite uh, quite a deep thinker. And, and his work informed what was what led to eventually what we think of in terms of design systems now. It used to be patterns, but he was an architect. And so his his theory of patterns came from a series of, of books that he wrote a long time ago. Um, I think the first one in that series was uh, a timeless way of building, right? And so, you know, there is this notion of in design with a capital D, not just what we do, this notion of things that are timeless, right? And some of these ideas are timeless. And because if you're practicing it right from an interaction design perspective, you are respecting cognition and emotion, right? Human limitations, human capabilities, that is fairly timeless. Those things don't go away. So the idea of object orientation, like we started this series with and talking about how that relates to cognition, the idea of task-based, you know, workflow-based paradigms and the, the types of computing that we're talking about, those aren't going to go away regardless of whether you're talking about spatial computing, mobile apps, web apps, web pages, whatever, right? Those are those are still enduring. So, yeah, I think you're right. And um, there's a relationship between the two things. There are timeless things that we should be 
practicing and thinking of, and then there are the constraints, we always have design constraints, of whatever the technology of the day imposes mm-hmm. upon us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I th- and 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 sometimes they, um, yeah, I think there's always a translation that has to happen, where you've got to collaborate together and say, look, this is what from a, an interface design point of view we're trying to achieve. C- can we do that? What can't we do? What's hard to do with that? Um, and, and I definitely, you know, it's definitely important for, and I think this has gotten harder and harder for, for interaction designers to do, I think, maybe I'm wrong. It's definitely important that if you're the designer, you have some amount of understanding of the technology and, and what, and what, what it's like to program the thing you want. Yeah in this particular case. And, and I think that used to be easier. I mean, I remember, um, you know, taking, taking courses in whatever was the latest programming tool. I remember taking a course, uh, in object oriented programming. Uh, I probably could remember what the tool was if I thought about it hard enough you know, it was a, like the latest tool for doing object-oriented programming. And it wasn't anything about design and it wasn't anything about UX design or interaction design. It was about programming a, a, a graphical user interface right, in Windows, right. you know, and it was, was the new tool, newest tool for doing it. And I went to like a five-day course with, and everyone in the room was a programmer except me. And I was driving everybody crazy. And it actually, that experience, because back in the day, you I believed you had to know about the programming languages that were being used on the project you were on. And I had some of a programming background. And so I would just do that. I'd make sure I knew enough about whatever the most popular programming languages and environments were so that I could have the conversations with the programmers when I wanted to design something a certain way. And, and I can tell you it's extremely powerful um, and maybe, you know, I'm not, and I'm not saying this is realistic now, but it was then. You know, it's very powerful when you're an interaction designer or UX person and you're in conversation with the developers and, and you say, well, you know, based on our research, we'd like to do it this way. This is what users want. And they look at you and they go, oh, well, we can't do that. And then if you can say to them, oh, well, really, why not? Because I think if you do it and you can actually talk the pro- enough programming language, right. and I've seen them just look at me and go, you know, basically you can see they're thinking, oh, crap. She, <laughs> she knows more about programming than we thought, you know, and then they have to, you know, and then they're like, well, maybe we could do it if, right? It's like, right, uh-huh. right. you know, and that was really powerful to be able to 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 push them a little because um, you knew some of the technology they were working with, but um, it's you know it, it's still oh I was going to say I've told this story before you've probably heard this story before Dean and I'm going to be you know an obnoxious elder 
and tell the same story again, you know, that people have heard before, right? Elders well, always well, do, do a that. better job than the story I told earlier. Well, I don't, I have no, <laughs> I have no guarantees. Um, so I was in this class on object-oriented programming. And this was before, I can't believe this, to even say this, this was before um, there was such a thing as, UX designers or interaction designers or UI people. It wasn't a profession. And so when I was teaching my classes on, you know, UX and UI and so on, I taught them to uh, programmers, software mm -hmm. developers, and business analysts because that's who was doing design because there weren't designers doing design. There was programmers. They were doing all the interaction design for all right. these applications. And um, so I was taking this class, and I was annoying everyone in the class because I, you we would do these exercises with a partner, you know, and they, in which they wanted us to design a screen because then we would have to do the programming underneath it. And, of course, I was interested in the screen we were designing and no one else in the class, right? The screen was right. just the vehicle to try out the programming. And so I was sitting with my partner, and she'd been working with me for, like, you know, the last couple of days on all the exercises. And I, and, and I said to her, yet again, I really think we should maybe move that box over there, and maybe we shouldn't call the button this. And... She had apparently, this had been building for several days, and she pounded on the table. And she looked at me and she said, we don't have time for this. And the whole class turned around and looked at us because like, ooh, that group's fighting. And I had this big light bulb explosion in my head where it was like, oh my God, she's right. You, and, and I said to myself right at that moment, because I still remember this moment, we can't do this. Moving forward, programmers and developers and software engineers are not going to be able to design the interactions in the interface because we're now at a le different level of complexity of software yeah. design. And, and it is all you can handle trying to learn how to do this. And if we expect, programmers to also care about the interaction design, it's not going to happen. And I walked out of that class and said, I'm changing the direction of my business because hmm. I was in consulting. Uh, I'm going to, I'm not going to teach, I'll keep teaching classes to programmers if they want it, but I'm now going to advocate with my clients that they have specialists for interface and interaction design that and those people don't program they yeah. just design the interface and that at that point was like you know it was like what <laughs> and and now and I wasn't the only one I think that had that thought because that was the beginning of this development you know of of this role of the interaction designer or interface designer, or UI designer, or UX designer, or whatever you want to call this thing. Um, <laughs> you know, that above. was that moment when, and I think is because the, the, I don't know why it is, but the, it, it was, it was, impo it's impossible 
to both code great software and design a great interface. One person can't be doing both of those. That was the realization some of us came to. Um, but, and, and another interesting thing about that, I think, is, you know, we talk about object-oriented programming. Right. And we then we talk about object-oriented design. And the two are somewhat related, but they're not the same. And a lot of what I did back then, um, and maybe this still happens, is I had to, I had to, we had to do a translation. You know, I, I remember a conversation, here, here's an example, Dean. I had a client and they had done object-oriented programming and they had set up these objects you know, in their, in their code, they had objects identified with variables and all of that stuff. And we were working on the interface and we had an object. Um, we had one object that was called employee and we had another object that was called, right. you know, vendor and so on. And um, another object called customer, right? And we had these different objects and the programming people said, oh, no, that's the same object. And we were like, what? How can an employee and a customer and a vendor be the same object? Right. And yeah. they said, yeah, yeah. well, look at it. They've got names, phone numbers, <laughs> addresses, location. It's the same data. It's the same variables. So we've, that's just, that's like a person object. That's what we call that. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But from the the interface point of view and from the human thinking about it, those are not the same object. And right. so we, you know, we had to do this, you know, as soon, but we could have that conversation. And then the, the software group was like, oh, okay, 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 we get it. And, we, and then they knew, you know, what to do with what we were doing, right? They knew how to connect the two. And I don't know that those conversations necessarily happen in the same way these days. I could no, and I'll, I, I know we need to, to wrap up here, but that's a, that's a perfect way to segue into uh, our next conversation and pick up on object oriented programming, describe that a little bit and then go into the nitty gritty, as we've said of, of object oriented UI design, UX design, experience design, again, whatever we want to call it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you I wait a minute. Does that mean we need, an episode four? We need at least an episode four. We're not going to get to 17. We keep saying that, but. Okay. But we we'll need see. an episode four. Uh, Guthrie's holding out hope. Um, <laughs> so I think, so I'll just kind of a, a last thought on that because, you know, we're supposed to be human centered professionals, right? And so all this talk about technology, all this talk even about design, um, gets us away from the human side of things. We want to design from a human-centered perspective, but we also produce things. So, you know, this is a team sport, what we do. We produce things from a human-centered perspective as well. And so what you're touching on is this, this idea. There's a, a fellow named Etienne Winger who was a communications and education uh, theorist, and, and he developed the idea of communities of practice, right, which is – not a casual word. It's a, it's a term of art. It's a, it's, you know, there's formalism around what a community of practice is and, and some literature around that. And 
whatever we call ourselves, user experience, user interface, usability professionals, you know, we've been through the litany, human factors, whatever, that whole group of people, that tribe is one community of practice, albeit with factions, but still a community of practice. Mm -hmm. Programmers, developers, software engineers is another community of practice. Our tools, our methods, our vocabulary, our paradigms are all different. It's a Venn diagram. It's over, overlapping, but we, we have to bridge that gap. And so object-oriented UI design and object-oriented programming are similar and related, but not precisely the same thing. Yeah, which can cause... It don't you know? It almost be better if they were. That's right. Totally yeah. different. Makes it worse. It right. is. Right. Is it is when they're kind of the same, and then people think when they're talking, they're talking about you know yeah. this, and the other person's talking about something slightly different, but you don't realize it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right, uh, Guthrie, we get to come back and yeah. keep going. Yeah, of course. Of course, we're in no All rush. Right. We're in no rush. So, uh, Guthrie, if people have comments or questions that they'd like us to tackle in the next episode, where should they contact us? Uh, you can email us at info at the teamw.com. All right. Thanks, Dean. Thanks, Guthrie. Susan, thank you. Guthrie, thank you. Looking forward to uh, round four, I guess. Round four. That. Sounds right. fun. We'll talk All to right. you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.